Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to um, Michael Wesley's book launch of Restless Cotton. If I could begin by uh, Griffith's traditional uh, acknowledgement of the custodians, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet today and pay, of course, respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, I have a list of acknowledgements of people who are alleged to be here, but I'm not sure I've actually seen many of them. <laughs> but but um, uh, Captain Kuiper, the Honorary Consul for the Netherlands, is, uh, is said to be here. I don't see him, but um, he's a faithful member of our, our group. Um, Clive Hildebrand, I know to be here, a, a, uh, a member of the GAI Council, um, Professor Michael Powell is coming, uh, I think. Um, Professor Ian O'Connor is not coming. Uh, the Vice-Chancellor of the University was indeed intending to be along this evening, um, but was called away at short notice. Uh, so he, he is an apology. Um, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that we do here at the Griffith Asia Institute is to uh, undertake, encourage and support scholarship on Asia. Um, and perhaps it's a surprise to, to some um, that we even do it when the work is published by an academic from another institution, um, perhaps one that some might regard as a rival institution. Um, whether ANU quite fits that category or not um, is perhaps a matter for, for debate. Um, but Michael offers, um, occupies a place of um, special importance in the minds and perhaps even in the hearts of those of us at Griffith uh, University. Uh, he's not just uh, another academic, uh, he is a member of a very distinguished species. Uh, he is of course one of my predecessors as the director of the Griffith Asia Institute. Uh, so however far he may roam from us and from Queensland, um, both professionally and geographically, uh, we always claim him as our own. And Michael, it's an absolute delight to welcome you back to Griffith and to the Griffith Asia Institute. Very pleased indeed that you've been able to come this evening. Michael left us, I think it was in 2009, and has travelled very widely um, since that time. He went to Hong Kong, uh, to the Lowy Institute, to the National Security College in Canberra, and now he has come to rest, um, at least for the time being, I think it's fair to say, um, as the director of the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Uh, one of the things that's always struck, struck me about Michael's career, one of the more remarkable things, is that um, many of these positions he has held uh, have certainly been academic positions, and they have been positions um, where he has sometimes been required to teach, but not also but they have almost certainly been administrative positions with a, quite a heavy burden of administration. Um, but while Michael has perambulated around various parts of Australia and the region, he has always continued to publish. Um, and he hasn't just tossed off um, the odd book chapter um, or the odd journal article, um, although he has done that, certainly, he has continued to think deeply about Asia and about Australia's place in Asia. 
And fortunately, fortunately for all of us in this room, but fortunately I think for um, those, of who are, those of us who are interested in this scholarship of Asia more generally, he has frequently offered us insights into his own thinking and thoughts. Um, many of you will know um, his 2011 study entitled There Goes the Neighbourhood, Australia and the Rise of Asia, which of course um, was widely acclaimed and indeed won various book awards, um, with Restless Continent, Wealth, Rivalry and Asia's New geopolitical, uh, Geopolitics. He has, one might colloquially say, done it again. We will hear from Michael in a moment, but by way of introduction, um, Restless Continent... I have an advanced copy, ladies and gentlemen. Um, offered us what is at times an alarming or at least unsettling insight into the Asia of the future. The book wrestles with the interaction of two seemingly straightforward and well-known trends. The deepening regional interdependence of the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific and great power assertiveness that causes growing insecurity while simultaneously eroding trust and an interest in compromise. The value of Michael's treatment of these themes is, I think, the sophistication with which he draws out their interconnections and, indeed, the likely consequences. Uh, and if you're inclined to think that the implications are not only vexing and challenging to Asia and thinking, well, that's as far as they go, then Michael has news for you in this book because, in fact, he argues that the transformations that are changing Asia have global implications. He writes, the prospect of the rest of the world being unaffected by Asia's patterns of interconnections and rivalries is small. In our globalised world, where tightening connections mean that even remote events can have a very big consequence for a continent over 60, where there is 60% of the world's population and soon to produce over half of the world's economic activity, it will have impacts well beyond our shores. Ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a book that fairly sparkles with insights and indeed wisdom. Um, Wesley, one might say, at the top of his game. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to find out this yourself if you have not already um, done so because the book, of course, is on sale. The privilege of being invited to this event is that you have an opportunity to uh, purchase the book um, for, I'm sure, a very modest figure. I don't know what it is, that modest figure, but I'm sure it's a very modest figure. Uh, and I'd encourage you all to, to pick it up um, as, you, as you depart. For the moment, though, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure indeed that I pass over to you, Michael Wesley, to offer you compelling insight into perhaps uncertain and perhaps a none too secure future. Michael. Russell, what can I say? Thank you for that enormously generous introduction. In fact, I think I'll text my pub publicist 
at Black Ink Books and, uh, and ask them to put you on contract. I thank you, Russell, for the opportunity to come and speak to so many old friends and a wonderful university in Griffith University. And I thank you, Russell, for your uh, friendship and your counsel over many years for a struggling academic. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very fond of anniversaries. Now, this would come as somewhat of a surprise to my wife, who would archly observe at this stage that, that I've often managed to be overseas at the time of our wedding anniversary and indeed the, uh, the birthdays of our children. But I think anniversaries are a good opportunity for us to think about the passage of time and what's changed over time. So if you go back 100 years, if you go back to 1915, and of course this has been a year of anniversaries, we've been commemorating the Gallipoli landings and various other aspects of our history, but if you go back to 1915 and you think about Australia's relationship with its own region, 1915 for Australia was a very unsettling year. For those Australians who thought about events other than that were occurring in Europe, 1915 was a year in which the German possessions in our part of the world that had troubled us so much. Remember uh, back in the 1880s, the German arrival in, uh, in the northern part of the island of New Guinea had really caused the first foray of Australia into the world. When the colony of Queensland, the great colony of Queensland, had petitioned Whitehall uh, with great worries about the German Empire arriving so close to Australian shores. And Whitehall came back and said, well, live with it, really. Our relations with Imperial Germany and Europe are much too important to disturb things in the South Pacific, in that, that wayward place in the South Pacific. And therefore, and, and, and at that point, the colonists of Queensland decided to mount a unilateral expedition and take hold of the southern part of the island of New Guinea. So in 1915, in some ways, it was a comforting period because the British Empire and Australia and New Zealand, as representatives of the British Empire in 1914 and 1915, went and seized German possessions in the South Pacific including, of course, uh, the northern part of the island of New Guinea, the, uh, the, the, the colony that had been known as German Samoa. But even more disturbing, there was another power that was allied to Britain that had taken other German possessions, and that power was Japan. It had taken German possessions in the Shantung Peninsula in China, and more importantly for Australia, it had taken... German uh, territories in the mid and northern Pacific Ocean, in the Marianas uh, and the Caroline Islands, as they were called. And Australian uh, society and Australian opinion at that stage was very worried about what the Japanese were going to do with this, and with some justification, as it emerged in the 1920s and 1930s, that despite having signed the Washington Treaties, which had prohibited them from doing so, the Japanese were constructing naval bases in these central Pacific islands. So 1915 was a period of great worry. It was a period in which we worried about the distraction of our great power ally in a war in Europe. 
We worried about its willingness to take on real tasks out here in the South Pacific and, and in Asia. And we worried about a rising Asian power that was starting to encroach on, on the approaches to the Australian continent. If you jump forward 50 years from 1915 and come to 1965, it's another very interesting year to look at. 1965, of course, was the year that Australia committed troops to the war in Vietnam. It was a year in which we were deeply worried not only by the increasing uh, lurch of Indonesia under Sukarno uh, towards communism, towards an axis with, with Peking, uh, but we were also deeply worried, of course, about the march of communism through the weakened states of Southeast Asia. So looking back 100 years and 50 years, we see Australian anxieties. Anxieties about rising Asian power but paradoxically about weakness as well. Weakness within Asian societies that allows the march of things like communism or Japanese militarism and imperialism. And we worry also uh, about the commitment of our allies. Historical research has shown now that Australia was not dragged into the Vietnam War. Australia was at least as willing a contributor to the Vietnam War as the United States was. It was part of Australia's task in 1965 in committing troops to Vietnam to ensure that the United States did so as well, that the United States stayed the course as we regarded it. And so we come to 2015. And here we stand 100 years after 1915 and 50 years after 1965. And we stand, I think, again at another cusp, another historical, important historical epoch. And that is essentially what the book is about. I rarely mention Australia in Restless Continent. It's really about the geopolitics, the wealth, the rivalry, the interdependence in the continent to our north. But I think the events that I describe in that book have got very, very big implications for us here in Australia. If you go back to 1975, 40 years ago, we saw the end of the Vietnam War and we saw the beginning of a remarkable period of peace, of relative peace, I should say, and prosperity in the Asian region. And that's where I start Restless Continent. I look at the last quarter of the 20th century, the period between the end of the Vietnam War and the end of the 20th century. And I argue that there were some remarkable conditions that evolved at that time to make sure that Asia became relatively peaceful and highly successful and prosperous over time. I'm not going to tell you what they are because then you won't buy the book. So but they were, that was a period of remarkable prosperity and peace. If you go back 30 years to 1985, I think you saw the inauguration of a period of Australian foreign policy that my colleague at the ANU, Andrew Carr, calls the era of engagement. That was the period in which Australia uh, had started to think about itself in very much independent terms, and to see the trends of what was happening in the Asian continent and to think seriously about 
how Australia should be engaging to this, uh, with this part of the world. 1985 uh, saw Australia with a relatively new government, a relatively new foreign minister in Bill Hayden, very important to Griffith University and to Queensland itself, and Bill Hayden taking a remarkably courageous a series of steps to try and bring about some sort of resolution to the conflict in Cambodia. And Griffith University was a very big part of that, uh, of that initiative because it was at that time in 1985 that Bill Hayden approached Russell's predecessor at GAI and, and my predecessor, Nancy Viviani, and asked Nancy to put on a series of workshops to try and work through how, we would, how Australia could get past the obstacles and the hatreds and the suspicions that were dominating the stalemate in Cambodia to try and bring about some resolution. It was a period in which Australia was prepared to take risks, to be creative, to be flexible. And a lot of Hayden's work, I have to say, has been overshadowed by Gareth Evans, his successes, great success in playing a key role in bringing about a resolution to the war in Cambodia. But Australia realised at that stage uh, that we had a role to play in Asia, that we had broader interests in the Asian region, and more importantly, if we got things wrong in Asia, then not much would go right for us. That this was an area where we had to get things right. We had to concentrate on what was going on and we really had to coincide with the big processes that were going on in the region. We had to work with them and we had to make them work for us. And the, that worked remarkably well. We had, starting in 1985 and ending in 1989, some very key government reports, including the Ingelson Review into Asian Studies in Australia, so important for Griffith University and for its mandate in Asian studies. We had the Dib Review into Australia's defence that formed the basis of the Defence of Australia doctrine. We had the Fitzgerald Review into multiculturalism and immigration in Australia that thought long-term about how Australia would engage in demographic ways with its closest region. And capping it all off, we had the Garno Report in 1989. Australia and the Northeast Asian Ascendancy, looking at the economic trends in the region and thinking hard about what Australia had to do to make the most of these trends and to become prosperous and secure, despite not despite them, should I say, uh, but, but taking hold and making use of them. And it was, ladies and gentlemen, I think not only a remarkably successful, peaceful, stable, prosperous period for Asia, it was a remarkably successful, prosperous, peaceful period for Australia. When the Gillard government came out with uh, uh, its white paper just over three years ago, titled Australia in the Asian Century, one of the things that I found very curious about it was this sense in which Australia was just discovering Asia. We were just starting to wake up to what was going on. There was a, a real sense of a lack of historical perspective in that particular document. 
And as I read through it, I thought, well, this is very interesting because it really, even though it calls the document Australia in the Asian century, there was a sense in which Australia was outside of the Asian century. And yet, reflecting back on the number of times that I have and many of you have travelled to the great cities of Asia, the gleaming towers of Tokyo and Kobe, Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou, Australia is part of the rise of Asia. It's there in the physical infrastructure. Look at the buildings, look at the highways, look at the power lines, look at all of it. And Australia has been a very big part of Asia's success story. And so, in writing Restless Continent, the big question I think about is, well, what are now the defining trends? If we come 30 years on from 1985 and we think about the region, the region has, without question, transformed, and it's transformed profoundly. And what I wanted to do was to set down some thoughts about exactly how the region is transforming. Without giving too much away, the book sketches out two trends and two conditions that I think will really set the future of Asia and therefore the world's future, and therefore this country's future. And I think our new vision of the direction our region is moving in, and therefore what we need to uh, adapt our foreign policy to, is set out in these two trends and these two conditions. Now, the two trends essentially are contradictory. And both are, I think, the consequences of Asia's explosive economic growth. The first of these is growing interdependence. And I spend some time and spill quite a few statistics talking about how Asia is becoming increasingly economically interdependent. There are two main trends that I look at, but there are a range of others that I hint at. One trend is the growing energy interdependence of the region. The fact that Asia's booming economies, these enormous behemoths that are industrialising faster than we have ever seen human societies industrialise before. All of these whether you look at the original industrialiser Japan or some of its close followers like Korea and Taiwan or some of its later followers like China and India, all of them are not in any sense self-sufficient in the energy they need to develop. As these societies industrialise, as they urbanise, they need greater and greater amounts of energy. And as a consequence, their dependence on imports of energy has increased exponentially. Just two economies, China and India, are going to be responsible for two-thirds of the growth of global energy consumption out to 2050. The interesting thing about the International Energy Agency projections is that the big mover up until about 2025 or 2030 will be China, and beyond that, India takes over. These are going to be enormous consumers of energy. And the only, resource, the only sources of energy that are deep enough and dynamic enough to be able to supply
supply this energy are in West Asia. So Asia is being knitted, knitted together into these very consequential strategic energy relationships. A country like China or a country, a country like India provides the sort of demand security that an insecure energy producer like Saudi Arabia really needs for its domestic stability, for the viability of its society and its governing system. Conversely, Saudi Arabia and some of its neighbours in the Gulf provide the supply security that these rising Asian giants really need to be able to grow and to be able to provide the fuel for their growth out into the future. The other form of, of interdependence is industrial interdependence. Now we've come to know and we've come to realise that the cars we drive, the computers we use, the iPhones we call home on are not designed, created, manufactured, assembled in one country anymore as they were 30 or 40 years ago. Increasingly, these complex manufacturing products that we use every day about our lives are now being increasingly manufactured in different countries. They're being the, the wonders of communications technology and management systems and logistics systems means that big corporations, big manufacturing corporations, can cite the, different the manufacture of different component parts in different countries depending on where it's cheapest and best to manufacture them. They are then assembled in a, in a location, in a particular location, and then, and then exported to the rest of the world. Now, the big thing that I discovered in the writing of this book is that this process, which is the future of global manufacturing, is most advanced in Asia. There is no region of the world that has gone further and faster and more extensively in this direction of the world. It means that when you had an earthquake and a tsunami like the tragic events in, of March 2011 in Japan, shutting down so many component factories in, in Japan at that time, you had double-digit drops in the production of automobiles and computers and entertainment systems across Asia. It had a major effect on the Asian economies. And so these are very deep and very profound forms of economic interdependence. And for those of us who know the literature of international relations, we would assume that this is all good news, that this means that Asia is set for a period of peace and prosperity just as Europe saw after the Second World War. Europe which used economic interdependence to build eventually a European Union, a union that made it unthinkable that the countries of Europe would go to war with each other. And yet, once again, Asia confounds us because the other consequence of explosive economic growth is deepening rivalry between the countries of Asia. There has been a period of real and rapidly shifting power relativities. Countries of Asia, as they've become stable and richer, have stopped worrying about the, their internal stability so much 
and started investing in their external security. Of course, driving much of this is China's challenge to America's preeminence in the Western Pacific, the new weapon systems that China is developing and developing very quickly, and of course the cascading rivalries that China's rise is setting off among its neighbours. Countries uh, in the Western Pacific and increasingly in the Indian Ocean Rim that are worried about the prospect of a region that is dominated by Chinese power. And so, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I record in the book is a slow-motion arms race that is developing in the waters to our north. We are seeing the beginnings of real maritime competition. We've become obsessed in this country about the new crop of submarines that we're developing. The fact is that we are one of a dozen or more countries in our part of the world that is either renovating or developing a new submarine capability. And it's not only submarines. It's surveillance systems. It's missile systems. It's surface combatants. It's a range of of maritime air that is permitting the countries of the southern Asian, southern and eastern Asian littoral to protect, to protect their populations and their centres of production that live along their coastlines. So we are, we are living through, ladies and gentlemen, a period in which America's uncontested dominance of the waterways of the Western Pacific is crumbling and is crumbling fast. And at the same time, uh, it is leading to an arms race and a real dynamic of suspicion and mistrust throughout the region. The thing about these two contradictory trends, uh, interdependence on one hand and rivalry on the other, is that they both, to an extent, restrain each other and stymie each other. As I said before, the interdependent logic will not lead to a resolution as we've had in Europe, simply because the mistrust is too great and the rivalry is too great. Neither will the dynamics of rivalry play themselves out as they have so often played themselves out in human history. Again, those of us who uh, know the, the, the literature of international relations will know that in, in, in previous eras, deepening rivalry led to a major war. And major wars generally cleared the international air. They allowed the great powers to have at each other, to have a go, and they really determined who was powerful and who wasn't powerful. They redetermined the hierarchy of international relations. In the words of the American international relations theorist Robert Gilpin, they allowed the international system to have a strategic reset. That option is no longer uh, possible in Asia. For a start, so many of these countries are nuclear armed, they are deeply economically interdependent, and they don't have the energy energy, uh, independence to be able to wage a sustained conflict on their own. And so we are locked into this period of rivalrous interdependence. There are a couple of structural conditions that I think will also determine Asia's future. The first one is 
the fact that Asia's international relations are going to be heavily determined by the hierarchic nature of their societies. It's very hard to think of any Asian society that doesn't have social hierarchy built into its basic social structures, its basic language structures and its ways of looking at the world. Remember that Asia is a region that has extensive international relations before the European colonialists ever got there. And what's fascinating to me is the extent to which these these pre-colonial patterns of international relations, particularly around ideas of hierarchy in international affairs, are starting to reassert themselves in the post-colonial era as well. We are now seeing real dynamics of cultural rivalry, expectations of deference and refusal to give it, and real cultural mistrust and pride. The other structural condition that I talk about at length in the book is Asia's geography. We should never forget Asia's geography. A geography that I argue in the book, particularly around the coastlines, the southern Indian Ocean coastlines and the eastern Pacific Ocean coastlines, that I argue concentrate both power and vulnerability. And so, this is the new reality. Ladies and gentlemen, will we look back on 2015 as a significant year, as we look back on 1915 or on 1965 or even 1985? A significant year in Australia's relations with its region. Because so many of the verities that we have come to believe are just part of the the woodwork here in Asia are starting to crumble. And we need to think very clearly about where this region is going. One of the uh, things that I argue in the book, and I realise I'm running out of time here, is that we need to pay much greater attention to the nature of the great powers that are starting to dominate this part of the world. Too much of our thinking is dominated by thinking that When we think about Asia, it's all about China. Or if we think about what's happening in Asia, it's all about China versus America. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that I think that that is profoundly mistaken. There are other dynamic, complicating factors. Other countries may not be rising as fast as China, but they are rising surely. And this is a particularly crowded region. This is a region, let's not forget that by the middle of this century is going to uh, house the four largest economic powers in the world. And if human history tells us anything, economic size brings military capabilities. Economic size brings expectations of deference. And increasingly, the growth of power also brings about what I call the, the power paradox in the book. The more powerful a country becomes, the more vulnerable it feels and the more threatening it starts to become to the powers around it. So, ladies and gentlemen, here are what I think are the stark outlines of the region that we confront. We need to do better than the Australia in the Asian Century white paper. We need to be much more nuanced, much more considered about where the region is going 
what Australia's interests are and how we relate to this region. I don't think we've really start, started to begin to think about the deep complexities and the deep challenges that are coming our way. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope Restless Continent at some level plays a part in helping kick off that sort of thinking. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.